Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> I hope that you have all survived daylight saving time and are able to stay awake. I uh, thought for just a moment that uh, I would ask a couple of brothers to post themselves around the auditorium with water pistols just in case anybody got sleepy. But then I got to thinking, well, the elders probably wouldn't be real fond of that. So anyway... Uh, Again, I'm setting up over here, and I hope that those of you who are able can move closer. Uh, not only do we, does it improve fellowship, but it also helps the class as a whole. Last week, I passed out a syllabus of this class, and some of you indicated you did not get a copy. And there's a couple of gentlemen who have copies, additional copies made, if you did not get one and would hold up your hand, uh, they'll provide that for you. Here's one over here, Gary, uh, right here. Anyone who'd like a copy? We are studying the subject of God's big picture. And if you don't like that particular name for it and think of a better one, then you could also call it... Uh, God's plan, or you could call it God's plan of redemption, God's plan for salvation, a variety of things. Uh, but that'll give you uh, some clue, perhaps, as to where we're headed with this. Uh, as the first chart indicates there, just by way of review, uh, I uh, talked about the beginning of God's plan and these four components to it. It's all interwoven together, the plan and historical events, and we'll be looking at both aspects, history and the plan itself, but mainly at the plan. The plan is made up of covenants, kingdoms, and priesthoods. Not only those, but those are some of the primary elements that make up God's plan, and we'll see that as we uh, progress along. Uh, we'll look at things in terms of what God has done, why he did it, and also uh, why does it matter. And uh, we might talk a bit uh, in this lesson about how he went about going about it. But uh, this lesson number two is entitled God's Purpose for Creation uh, and for Us. Why did God create us? Why did he create the cosmos, the universe? Uh, and for that matter, I have to, as I indicated last week, wonder why did he create mosquitoes and chiggers? Uh, why did he create fleas? For that matter, why did he create something like the duckbill platypus? Uh, but we'll find out that God had a very good reason uh, for all of this. And we're going to be looking at that. And we'll beginning, be beginning in the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn there, we'll be looking at several spots along the way 
but beginning in Genesis chapter 4. The first thing that I'd like to suggest is in the case of Cain and Abel, we find the first priesthood uh, that is recorded in the Bible. Uh, And we see already starting to form in Cain and Abel's worship some patterns that we'll see occur over and over. Uh, So this is the patriarchal age of time with its priesthood of the head of the family. Now we don't know whether Adam was still the head of his family, the head of Cain and Abel. It seems to suggest that they are on their own because they both brought sacrifices to God. So this suggests to me at least that they were, if not independent and on their own, perhaps they were already the heads of households themselves. But they also brought uh, separately a sacrifice to God. And I think it's interesting, of course, that God right off the bat rejects one of those sacrifices. And we have to wonder why. Well, uh, I don't know that we have the total answer to that, but Hebrews 11.4 provides us some answers. It said that, uh, that Abel did what he did because of his faith or by faith. Uh, that gives us a, a clue, I think, as to uh, what's involved in worship and why God declared Abel's sacrifice was better uh, than that of his brother Cain. It may also uh, relate to the instructions that we find later in the Law of Moses where they had to offer animal sacrifices and those sacrifices, uh, for the most part, at least for the forgiveness of sins, they had to be blood sacrifices. Uh, but Cain brought of the fruit of the ground and for whatever reason, it was not suitable to God. But... Uh, In Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5, there's something stated there that uh, is important for us to note. It says that God respected Abel and his offering, and he did not respect Cain and his offering. So God's looking not only at the offering, but he's looking at the person as well. Uh, and we need to remember that, and we, of course, understand that in our own worship, uh, particularly as we commune at the table. Uh, it is important for us to have the right things on our heart. So we see some worship patterns starting to develop already here. One of them, of course, is that God gives very explicit instructions, and he expects us to obey those instructions. Uh, Another thing is that worship is a matter of faith. As it's indicated, uh, Abel's worship was satisfactory. And so God is looking not only at whatever we may offer him, he's also looking at our hearts, at the faith in our hearts. And then the other thing that I think it shows for us is that even though both of them apparently believed and, and certainly worshiped God, uh, there was a quality of faith on the part of Abel uh, that was superior or better, as it says in Hebrews 11, than that of his brother Abel. Now, a little bit further in Cain and Abel, we know the story. And uh, Abel 
had this to say to God, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, It seems already that the sins of the father or the sins of the mother and the father are passing down to the next generation. And I'm not saying that they're born with that, but Cain began to exhibit sinful behavior as well. So we see man at a very high level and slowly begins to descend into the depths of sin. And and we'll see that progress, of course, as we move along in the book of Genesis. Uh, But even though Cain didn't think he was his brother's keeper. If we think about things throughout the Bible, we'll remember and realize that God has always expected that of us. Uh, He emphasizes for us in the church that indeed relationships matter. They matter between between, uh, fellow members and the church, and they matter, of course, as far as that's concerned, to the rest of the world. God even tells us to love our enemies. Uh, so God's purpose, as I indicated last week, is very intimately tied to relationships. As we progress a little bit further in Genesis, we see this going on, good versus evil. There's a battle uh, going on between good and evil, and of course it continues today. But it says that wickedness was, a, was in abundance, or it abounded. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, In the very first two verses, it reads like this. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and that's talking about God's people, uh, they saw, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, and these are daughters of wicked men that it's referring to, were beautiful and they the men of God, took these beautiful wives. They took whichever ones they wanted, and for that matter, probably how many they they may have wanted as well. And if you remember back to the garden, the sin of Adam and Eve, it says Eve saw, and then she took what was uh, on the forbidden tree. So these people are doing the same thing. They see what they want, and they take it. Uh, even good men were turning to evil. Then in verse 5, we read, Then God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And then finally, look, God uh, looked on mankind, and this is his realization Genesis 6, beginning at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Well, God being God is going to respond to evil. How did he respond? He responded with with a worldwide flood. We know that story again. And there are three important things that I'd like you to notice about this and and how they relate to God's plan for mankind and how he will deal with sin. The first one of those is we know that God is a God of wrath, and that may or may not be very readable. I'm not sure. Uh, But God's response to sin is wrath. 
His holiness is, has been violated. And he is, of course, as we know, a God of holiness who cannot abide the presence of sin. That tells us, in this case, the extent of the flood destroying all people except for one family. How serious God is about sin. And surely, when we read in the Bible that God will one day destroy this world with fire, surely we are convinced that God is serious about sin. In Genesis 6, at verse 7 and 8, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. Notice this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. It tells us that Noah was a righteous man and he was a man who walked with God. But it's interesting that it says Noah found grace. It was God's grace that delivered Noah, just as his grace can deliver us. The other thing that we learn in this story is that God has a plan to rescue man. Uh, Even though the garden and the world had gone downhill uh, from the beginning of time, God is going to save this one righteous family. Uh, The third thing that it tells us about God, he's a God of patience. He waited a long time before he took action. He allowed Noah to preach for 120 years that uh, the flood was coming, that God was going to take his vengeance if they did not repent. And we're familiar, I think, and I just want to remind you of this passage in Matthew 24. And uh, if you would hold your thumb there in Genesis and turn over with me to Matthew 24, starting at verse 37. As a reminder to us, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Even though the people were warned and we have been warned, uh, not everyone heeds the warning of God's impending wrath. This shows the scene where Noah and his family have gone through the flood and they've now exited the ark. And again, we see another time of worship. And we can learn some additional things about worship here. Uh, Worship is a response to God's rescue. In Genesis 8, at verse 20, we read as follows. Genesis 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Then the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. I wonder what Noah and his family were feeling at this time, at this occasion. They've been for months in the ark. 
and now they find that they survive in a world that's devastated, totally destroyed. I have to think that surely gratitude, great gratitude was in their hearts for what God had done for them. And surely gratitude is something that God expects from us in our worship. And we do. We feel that at the, at the table again. We're grateful for what God did, uh, what he was willing to do for us. So we celebrate in our worship rescue from sin, just like Noah was rescued uh, by God. One of the things that crossed my mind when I was thinking about this and God's plan God's plan for us meant that before time began, he knew that his son would come into the world. He knew that his son's back would be shredded by the Roman scourge that they beat him with. He knew that those nails would be nailed through his hands and his feet. Yet God planned it that way to rescue us. Surely, gratitude will fill our hearts when we think about God planning all that, knowing it would happen. Noah's time indicates a new beginning. And uh, we know the story of the rainbow, and we know the promise associated with it. But there were some things that God gave uh, as commands to Noah. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He told them that they could kill animals where before they'd only been allowed to eat plants, but they were not to eat the blood uh, in the animals. And by the way, that command is repeated in the New Testament in Acts 15. And he told them uh, about capital punishment. He said, if you kill a man, it'll be life for life. Uh, Cain was able to escape without losing his life. But no longer was that to be the case as far as God was concerned. But, and again, he repeats the command to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, this, this particular command is called by some the cultural mandate. That is, go into all the world, multiply, and create more people who are indeed in the image of God. We have a mandate very similar to that. It's called the Great Commission. Go into all the world and create people who are in the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, That is the command that we have and the covenant that he gave with Noah promised that never again would the world be destroyed by flood? This is an indication of God's faithfulness. We have the assurance that God will allow this world to stand until we have the opportunity to fill his great commission uh, going into all the world. And there's some things about covenants that we can pick up in this as well. Uh, Three points again. Uh, people generally regard this covenant with uh, Noah as unconditional. God will unconditionally continue the world 
uh, until judgment uh, by fire. But really, if you think about it, God did have some conditions. Noah had to enter the ark. He had to take all the animals with him. He had to close it up and do just as as exactly as uh, God commanded him to. And of course, he had to build the ark. Uh, Another thing is that his covenant, this covenant, is with all the people of the world, very much or just like the Great Commission. All the people of the world, not just Noah's family or a certain nation. And the third thing is it was sealed with a sign. The sign that God seals us with is water baptism. Just like death came by water, life also came by water, and life also comes to us by water as well. But the rainbow signified that God will not destroy the earth ever again by flood. He'll preserve it until a time that is right for him. Never again. This is a scene that depicts what happened at the Tower of Babel or Babel. Uh, And we know God confused the language of the people there and he frustrated their efforts to build this tower. Uh, I think it's appropriate maybe to wonder, well, why did God do that? Well, remember that command that he gave to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And that's exactly what God had told them. And he told them here again in Genesis 9 and verse 7, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. But mankind had a different reaction. They said, we're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. And we're going to let it reach to heaven. The reason is, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. They were saying to God, yeah, forget this multiply business. We're going to stay right here. Uh, We're not going to. We're going to huddle together. We're not going to be scattered about. So God came down and he confused their language and uh, they were unable to complete their task. Just like God was serious about his cultural mandate to go into all the world, surely we understand that he's serious about his great commission to go into all the world. But I think this is one illustration of of God's plan and uh, how he will go about implementing it uh, as we uh, look down through the ages it's important for us to understand that uh, God can confuse our plans, but we can't confuse his plans. They will happen. Now to the theme of our lesson. Uh, What is God's eternal purpose? Why did he create us? Why did he create the world? Uh, And, of course, we know that Scripture gives us an answer to that, to all of God's major questions. Uh, Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Uh, And uh, he does provide an answer for us. And in order to see his purpose, we can't stop right here at the beginning of of the Bible. We have to really go closer to the end. And we do that by looking in the book of Ephesians. There God explains uh, his ultimate purpose for man. Uh, 
as we, as we look at God's master plan, there are some questions to ask about that. The first question is, uh, what is he going to do? Uh, in this plan, how does he plan to go? How does he expect to go about accomplishing his plan? And we read about that in Ephesians chapter one, at verse four. Uh, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. What did God do? He chose us. He selected us. Now, this is not like the Calvinists suggest that he chose anybody that he wants to, but rather he chose a plan. He chose uh, how we might be saved. He did not chose, choose who would be saved. Also, we ask the question, when? And, of course, we re- as we've read, it was before the foundation of the world, uh, God gives us the choice to to participate in his plan or not. We have free will. We might also ask the question, why? Well, he did it so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Man was now standing in the presence of sin all around, no longer able to stand in the presence of God uh, as in the garden. God, because of his holiness, could not stand to be with sin. But he does want us again to be holy and blameless before him. Another verse tells us a bit about how. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, God is going to accomplish that according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God's plan for making us holy and blameless before him is tied to Jesus Christ. And we are familiar with the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, it reads as follows. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So remember, he chose us to be holy and blameless. He redeems us, he buys us back, by his son, and that's the only way we can stand before God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we go on in this, in this passage and we see that he saved us and called us with a holy calling, uh, in Second Timothy. Again, that passage there. Uh, he called us to be holy. He calls us through the gospel. And in Christ, he saved us not according to our works. It's not anything you and I can do, but according to his purpose and his grace. Uh, And he did it by the appearing 
by the coming of, of his son. And I remind us again of God's planning ahead of time what would happen to his son in order that we might stand before him holy and blameless. Well, what does God require? I've listed uh, four passages here, and they all have the same theme. They all indicate that God's purpose for us is to live for his glory. Now, that word glory, we I'm not sure we have a good concept sometimes of what it means, but it comes from the word that originally or literally means heavy or weighty. So God is heavy or weighty in terms of his significance, in terms of his honor, in terms of how we should praise him. And I'd like to read these passages beginning with the one in Isaiah chapter 43. I will say to the earth, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. We were created and formed for God's glory. And this, I'm not going to read these other passages. I'll leave them for your uh, consideration uh, later on. But in Numbers, it says the whole earth glorifies God. In Romans 11:36, it is the purpose for all to glorify God. And in that passage, I do want, pardon me, I do want to read that one. For it's a short passage, Romans 11:36, <clears throat> And I'd like you please to notice the prepositions that are in this passage. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God is the source of, out of, or from him all things were created. Glory is for him and all for him. Through God, through his channel, or through the channel of his actions, uh, we benefit, we are all blessed. And to him, to God, we are to extend all glory, all praise. Uh, That's the goal for mankind, the purpose for which God created us. And then in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it speaks of, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Our purpose is to glorify God. Some people say, and suggest, uh, well, God himself wrote, give me glory. Isn't that a little bit egotistical and vain on his part? Well, I would suggest to those folks, uh, you need to rethink God. Think about him. This God who loves you, this God who is gracious, this God who is merciful, this God who is forgiving, is that, does that sound vain or egotistical to you? And then on top of that, this God who planned ahead of time 
long ahead of time to give his son to be so unduly and cruelly uh, put to death. Uh, I suggest the evidence suggests otherwise. God is neither vain nor egotistical. He is worthy of our glory. And I asked you last week to look at some passages in Ephesians. These three verses, 6, 12, and 14. And if you had time to look at those, you'll notice that they all share a phrase to the praise of His glory. And if you look a little more in detail at these, there's some interesting things uh, to observe there. Uh, In verse uh, 6, we notice it says that we are to praise the glory, that is the heaviness, the weight, the significance of God's grace. God's grace. Verse 12 says, because of our hope, In Christ, uh, we are to praise the glory of Christ. In verse 14, it tells us that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for an inheritance because of the Spirit has guaranteed that inheritance for us. We are to praise the Holy Spirit. So we are to praise God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are to honor and lift up their name uh, in our worship to everyone around us. And this book of Ephesians is basically outlining the purpose of the church. That is our purpose in the church. We're to honor, to praise Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to stop here and uh, ask a question. I think we have time for just a little bit of discussion. One of the reasons that I am not really fond of teaching in auditorium classes is it is difficult to have discussions. But let me ask you this question. How do we praise the glory of God, Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? How are you going to do that? What are your thoughts? Yes. Yes. Agreed. Other thoughts. How, how are you going to praise the glory of God? Singing. Okay. Singing is, is something that uh, we can use to praise God and encourage one another. How else are you going to praise the glory of God? Prayer is another means, yes. Uh, Very often when you hear public prayers here, there is a rather, sometimes a rather lengthy praise of God because He created us, because He loved us, because he sacrificed his son and the many other gracious things that God has done. What else can we do to praise the glory of God? Live. Live. Yeah. 
Yeah, you make a very interesting observation. That word live there, or the word be, means to exist. You and I have being in the church. We've been saved for the very purpose of praising the glory in this specific case because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That is the reason that we exist in Him to praise Him. How else are you going to praise God? Any other thoughts? Yes. Yes, obedience of His commands. That does show respect. That's the same way we show respect as children to our parents, is it not? Uh, If we sass them and talk back in their face, that's not very respectful. When we tell God, yes, I accept your will. I will. I will obey. I will do as you have commanded me in worship. I will obey as far as my life is concerned. I will obey when it comes to how I treat my brothers and sisters or how I treat my enemies, even for that matter. All great ideas. Other, other thoughts about how do we praise the glory of God. Yes, sir, Brother Don. Yes. Yeah. It's awfully easy to let idle words come out of our mouths sometimes without a lot of forethought. When we do that, that's not praising God. So words are important in terms of how God looks at them. And again, he's looking at our heart, which is the source of those unkind words those words of disrespect. Yeah, yeah. We, we spread the word. That's the reason he gave us the Great Commission. It's not only just to say, well, you know, you need to repent. It's to let them understand that we have a God who loves them and He wants them to be saved. He will choose them if we will choose to obey. Other thoughts? Hey Bill, I have a thought. Yes, sir. You spoke a while ago about people accusing God of things to be built up. Mm-hmm. forever. He is self-existent. We are the products of His love, of His grace and mercy. Of course, those are reasons that He created us as well. But of... uh, 
Yes, that's right, exactly. We praise Him because we need it. We need to understand our relationship uh, with Him, where we stand in the spectrum of things that are spiritual in the spiritual world. Well, that's the warning bell. I'm going to go ahead and look at our last slide here. As, as I, I, I didn't put these buttons up, but we are to praise God's grace, God, our Christ hope, and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. But one final thing. Uh, we are created, as we know from Genesis 1, verse 26, that we are created in the image of God. But sin, of course, changed all of that. We didn't lose being the image of God, but our image became tainted or corrupted uh, by sin. God sees us when He looks at us just covered all over uh, with sin. And the Bible does teach us that we are made in God's image, as I said. And uh, we remain sinful uh, even though we are still created in the image of God. But uh, one of the things that I learned in, in looking into this passage, and this is a claim, I, I tried to ver validate this, but there are those who say that Christianity is the only religion that teaches that our Creator uh, created us in His image. And whether that's absolutely true or not, I could not validate that. But being the image of God is part of His eternal plan. And we still bear that image. However, there's something else about His plan. He wants us to become His image again. He wants us to become the image of Christ. And I'd like to conclude by reading 1 Corinthians 15. If you would, turn with me and read these verses starting at verse 42. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. As, with, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of a heavenly man, referring to Jesus Christ. That word bear there has the literal idea of wearing like a garment, putting on a garment and wearing it or bearing it. We put on the garment of Christ 
that's the only way that God can stand to look upon us is because we, we wear Jesus Christ. And as we go through uh, this study together, I hope that you'll kind of keep in mind that the end game, the thing that God is looking for us ultimately in His plan is that we all become the image of Christ. Look forward to seeing you next week, and thank you for being here. Uh, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, do we have still a moment for prayer? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you. We're, we're grateful that you have not only provided a plan, revealed that plan, and you have made known to us the purpose that you have for in mind for us in that plan. Father, we glorify you. We honor you. You are the one who created us. You are the one who gives us indeed purpose and life. We're so grateful for your love, for your majesty, for your power, for your forgiveness, and for your grace and your mercy. Father, we ask you to forgive us and to build us up and help us, Father, to look deeply and drink deeply of your holy word that we might indeed become and display to the world the very image of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray because of his great hope he's given us. We thank you in his name. Amen. Again, thank you. And uh, I'll leave the final word to Brother James, as he always says, don't run. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.